start streaming. And I need to find the right. Sorry, Sarah, this is a real professional operation here. So well. see, well, I can't, I cannot pre-mute <laughs> myself because uh, it doesn't give me the opportunity to. Um, there we yes, go. I have a thing that says claim I, host here. I remembered. Did not click that. <laughs> I remembered to mute myself there. And so uh, I think we're going through now and I can start the show. This is exciting. Oh. All right. Welcome to Connect This, another another fine episode with our first repeat guest. And I'm really excited to bring on the first person I'm going to introduce, Sarah Morris, who is the, I'm going to get this right, the director. And I want to call you an executive director or chief executive officer. You are the director of the Open Technology Institute, formerly the Open Technology Initiative, I think, uh, a New America. You've been there forever. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, and yes, we did switch from an initiative to an institute um, somewhere in my the middle of my tenure. I've been at OTI for almost 10 years. So and, um, and tell I've us, been there what do you do there? So OTI, uh, New America is a, um, a large organization that um, houses multiple programs ac across a wide range of issues, everything from uh, work family balance to education policy to foreign um, policy. Uh, and obviously technology policy and technology is something that underscores a lot of the work that New America does because it impacts so much of our daily lives. But the Open Technology Institute itself is a tech policy advocacy shop within New America. So we work on a wide range of issues from broadband access and adoption, net neutrality, um, cybersecurity and encryption, data privacy, um, and uh, platform accountability. How do we hold big tech accountable? Um, so. Today, I'm excited to talk about one of the issues that's nearest and dearest to my heart, which is broadband access and adoption. I was going to say, if, if you had to jettison anything, you'd keep the telecom and, and get rid of everything else, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> We're, they're all important priorities. We, uh, we also have returning champion um, Doug Dawson, who runs CCG Consulting, worked with more than 1,000 ISPs across the nation, including a lot of municipal ones. Welcome back, Doug. Hey, Chris, thank you for being having me back. So I wasn't sure after the last time if you'd let me come again. But. Well, you weren't as popular as Dane, but, you know, people like that. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. No one is as popular as Dane. So, yes. And then and then the person people really tune in to see, uh, Travis Carter, a guy I found peering into hand boxes on the street of Minneapolis just to see whose tech went where. Went where. Welcome back, Travis. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Uh, what would you say, five now? I think this, is, what, this five? is episode five, which means, makes it number the sixth show we've done because we're true geeks. We started at zero. Ooh. All right, here uh, we go. Right. And Travis, nice. we, you are officially co-host, I think. Um, <clears throat> I, I just, you didn't object enough when I suggested you should be the official co-host, so welcome. Yeah. So, so you mean they'll be at episode seven then, huh? All right. Thank you. And I'm Chris Mitchell from the Institute <clears throat> for Local Appreciate Alliance. And yes. I, I have to say, I'm feeling pressure. That open access episode we did got a lot of good feedback. People really liked it. I really liked it. So uh, I'm excited. It's a little rougher today because Rye is not here. So I'm running the different dials and things. But uh, this is going to be a great conversation. We're going to touch on uh, a couple of short topics ahead of time. And then we're going to dig into what we can expect and what we hope to see from the next four years of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. But once again, we're going to try this little gimmick of an opening uh, question, which I'll put to you first, Sarah which is you got a magic wish it's a little bit lame because you can't do anything major but what kind of minor or tweak thing would you magically have the fcc implement uh if you could just uh 
flick your fingers, um, snap your fingers and make it happen? So this is a great question because we at OTI think that there is some, some there are some things that the FCC can do uh, with a little bit more than a snap of the fingers, but uh, are certainly uh, early priorities that are achievable regardless of um, sort of who's, uh, what the, the actual count of uh, Republicans and Democrats there are in the commission when, when the president-elect uh, is inaugurated. Um, and that is to uh, clarify that E-rate support, uh, the, the FCC program that provides uh, support for connectivity for schools and libraries, that that support can be used for off-premise uses um, as we're all working from home and learning from home and doing everything from home in a lot of contexts. Um, flexibility, uh, and we've heard from a lot of local networks, flexibility and E-rate funding is critically important. And um, the FCC has been has not so far provided that clarity on how the funds can be used. Well, and it's, it's exciting that the Biden administration has heard that, or I should say, um, I, I give maybe too much credit. Um, I gave credit to the wrong people. Uh, the House and the and, and Democrats in the Senate seem to be pushing for a lot of broadband investment in this uh, ten billion dollar part of the the broadband part of the bill that's being introduced to deal with the stimulus um, to get some money out to fix the economy. And there's uh, half of that is dedicated to like schools for off premise equipment. Yeah, and to be clear, we think it's really important that the um, um, that there is a well funded emergency broadband benefit that goes beyond just school age children. Um, and that the, the school support for school-aged children includes um, Pell Grants as an eligibility because learning and, and connectivity needs don't stop um, when you graduate from high school. Um, but um, but the, the emergency broadband benefit is another critically important component of the, the, the House passed um, legislation because it would actually provide a literal um, lifeline of support to families that are struggling to pay their often extremely expensive internet bills during the pandemic. Right. Doug, what's your little tweak? It's not so little. Uh, I don't have any little tweaks. Everything I want is gigantic. But I think if I only had one thing that I'd want out of the FCC, I would like them to do their job. They they have a regulatory position where they're supposed to be halfway in between the companies they regulate and taking care of the general public to not get run over by monopoly power. That's their mandate from 1932. And we are about as 99% as close to the carrier side as you can get. And I'd like to see them come back to the middle 50 percent i would you know we're never going to get them back to the customer side but if they just got to be halfway between their their two their two constituents i would be thrilled to death so this this is something that that you wrote about that you came up with in terms of particularly the the favoritism around 5g that we're going to touch on <laughs> later in the episode i think if, if i have anything to say about it so indeed uh travis what's your little tweak uh I don't know if there is a little tweak, but I will continue to take any opportunity I can to promote the acceleration of the minimum broadband speeds across the nation. I <clears throat> This whole investing more in public or uh, open access wireless is just us buying the same road over and over and over again. So I, I would like to see a threshold, but well, I'd like to see gigabit as the minimum. Michelle, Up and I, down. I'll catch you. My colleague, Michelle Andrews, who does our GIS research, uh, believes there's on the order of 2,000 premises uh, that, um, I'm sorry, 2,000 locations, um, 2,000 census blocks that have a bunch of locations within them in which CenturyLink got six years of funding and now we will get 10 years of RDOF funding for um, as we go with this um, little bit at a time approach, which is maddening. Um, I guess I, so what? my- 
keep upgrading upgrade, upgrade their DSL? Is that what they're going to do? Fail to update. Yeah. That's money well spent. The um, <laughs> the thing I'd like to see is the minor issue. There's, there's two, but it's related to the same thing. One, and they're both around the FCC taking data from industry, which is kind of my hobby horse. Like at the bare minimum, we should expect the agency to do a good job of describing accurately what is happening in that industry in part so the markets can work more um, correctly. Uh, you know, Travis, like, you know, um, imagine if you could invest um, more based on knowing exactly where the um, – the need was the greatest and, and things like that, rather than just the way you've been doing it, which is it's worked for you. But um, I think it's frustrating that no one actually knows where broadband really is, what anyone's paying for it and that sort of thing. And so to that end, the FCC would collect pricing data um, and the FCC would have real penalties for people who lied to it over and over again. Not on the first time, not on the second time. These forms are hard. I could imagine submitting, mis making mistakes three times, but unlike the 10th time of lying to the FCC, there would be repercussions. That would be, that would be one of my things. Um, yeah, I just a plus one that Chris, if I can, if I may, um, mm -hmm. the 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 fact that the the expert agency on connectivity doesn't collect that no one actually collects price pricing data, um, and we are expecting this to be a market based a competitive marketplace where people can shop around and we have a good understanding of what things cost for what type of service is just completely maddening to me. We don't know how much the internet costs. OTI has. And OTI does this research um, and it's a huge burden and we shouldn't have to do that research. It's, it's always incomplete in, in some respects because um, we just, it's so vast. Um, and if, if, if we're going to expect any market uh, based solutions to happen, we need to know what the market looks like and what consumers are actually, what internet users are actually paying for the internet service they use um, and the type of value they're getting. So just right. wanted to the cost of that. connectivity report is the one you meant to plug yes <laughs> updated yeah the cost of connectivity is yeah we updated it this summer um it's one of it's it's a um a groundbreaking report that looks at the cost of internet in um a variety of cities throughout the u.s and compares the cost um for the the service provided to uh the cost and service in cities around the world and what we find um year over year is that the the u.s tends to lag behind its global peers. And that in, in particular with this um, report this summer that we're in the midst of a connectivity crisis um, and an affordability crisis where consumers, internet users cannot afford um, the, the baseline service for, for the type of internet access they need to, to exist in today's world. I'm going to, I'm going to let you get away with that one, Sarah, but you said consumers, which is going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to do a sound effects in the future, I think. So we were actually really specific in this report <laughs> where we, when we were talking about the people who had purchased broadband service, mm -hmm. um, we were using it relative to the providers. Um, generally, when we're talking about internet users uh, in the broader context, we talk about internet users. And I'm sure you do. But I know that that's your pet peeve. Well, I should just say that I feel like there's so many great people that came from um, OTI. I, I wanted to say this earlier, and um, but I decided to move on to Doug instead. But OTI has just great people who have really appreciated the importance of the internet, how it works, engineers that have gone on to work at private companies and public interest groups that are doing great work. Um, I just get a little annoyed at people who um, use the word consumer without fully appreciating um, the weight that is put on an internet user to be a contributor as well as a as well as a person that can. Consume. So, New America does a good job with Absolutely. that. Absolutely.
Uh, Doug, let me ask you, because we're going to come back to some of these things that we were just talking about for the weighty topic of the future of the FCC. But as we just want to touch on a couple of topical things, Mike Dano at Light Reading just put out an article this week that was talking about how AT&T is basically not doing millimeter waves. And I know this is something that you're interested in, but, you know, it just drives me nuts that that for years people like you and a number of other people, Blair Blair Levin is one in D.C. Gigi's been singing this for a long time, um, have talked about how AT and T and Verizon were way overemphasizing the five G stuff, and now it looks obvious that AT and T and Verizon are basically not doing millimeter wave to the home. No, they're and they're not going to uh, because that. You know, it makes no sense. Um, there's no business case, and, and that's true for all of 5G. In the last year, I went through and listened to the, the uh, investor reports from all the big wireless carriers where they actually talked to their investors, and every one of them admitted to their investor base, which they don't ever put in red anywhere else, that they don't really have a business case for 5G. You know, we look at, we look at South Korea, who's now had more 5G than anyone else, and their average revenue per customer went down 3%. It's like that's that's quite a very lucrative business case there. <laughs> the, the the fact is we don't have any 5G yet. I mean, what we have is 4G on a different set of frequencies. Uh, we do have the millimeter wave stuff, which is somewhat cool, but it's a gimmick, you know. So uh, so you know, it, there, it's, there's just nothing out there that it, that's so far beyond. Um, well, thirty second story is. They have to get folks off the 4G network. And so they came up with the 5G fiction so they can migrate people to the new spectrum. Otherwise, they wouldn't rush out and buy a new phone. And they absolutely had to do that. The 4G old spectrum bands are getting overcrowded to the point where they don't work anymore. And they simply have to get people to move over. So they convinced them that 5G using these new spectrum bands is, is, is very much worth buying a new phone for. Apple's thrilled. They're the only one making money at 5G. And, and so, so they are succeeding in deloading the 4G network. So, so, you know, that was their goal. And if they would have just come out and told us, hey, folks, the networks are getting really overcrowded. We need some of you to move over to other spectrums. I think a lot of people would do it. But instead, we went through this whole rigmarole about the technology that's four or five years away. We're not going to see any real 5G, I don't think, until maybe 2026 or seven. So at that time, it's actually kind of cool technology, but it's no work. We're not even to 4.1 G yet. So. <laughs> Travis, do you feel like you're winning the race to 5G? Oh, 5G just confuses your lenders is all it does. How many write-ups and explanations that we had to talk about how 5G was going to basically wipe everybody out of business. Um, you know, a little bit of that now is happening with Elon Musk's uh, satellite network. Um, you know, about how this is supposed, you know, there's, this is the beauty of being, or the sad part of being in our industry. There's always the new widget. We, you know, we've had it for however many years. There's going to be the new thing that comes out and yeah, 5G had its moment in the sun and now Starlink will have its moment for a while. But you know what, when you, when you run a fiber cable to a home, you're done. Got a hundred years of connectivity. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just think about the days when they were running the electrical system, if they were running like, you know, 38 gauge wire or whatever into homes and we had to rewire it every, every three to five years. I mean, how ridiculous would that be? You know, it's, it's, it's what we're doing now. It's so 5g, eh, that was yesterday's news. What do you got now? I've always told you 9g is when we're going to have a problem. (laughs) 
Well, the other thing I'd add is that, you know, 5G isn't the type of service that's going to connect uh, everyday folks to the internet, right? It's not an affordable option. It's not an option that does well in rural or even particularly suburban or exurban areas. And uh, it, it's just there, the, the affordability and connectivity crisis that I mentioned earlier um, should be the conversation we're having in every policy circle right now. There are people who are struggling to afford their internet connection at home at a time when they are, when their health and safety and ability to succeed in, in, in doing anything day to day is predicated on a robust and affordable internet connection. And, the, and so, you know, to me, it's really hard to have a conversation about 5G when we haven't even passed uh, legislation to get families the support they need to stay connected online. Now, I'm going to, um, in a second, I'm going to be hyperbolic, so everyone should prepare themselves. But, but Sarah, <laughs> I want to note that, that Verizon and AT&T see a very good use case for 5G in parts of many NFL stadiums. So they have that going right. for them. Right. Now, now, it seems to me, Sarah, I think of you as being a very close FCC watcher more than some. And and Doug made a really good point about how it's odd that the FCC talks about technology neutrality all the time while also just being like one of the biggest cheerleaders for 5G. And I mean, well, we should note without cause, like we all want 5G in five or six years, like as the technology moves through it. I don't know the FCC had to like move billions of dollars from local governments to the wireless industry in order to make that happen. It did. But it seems to me that like combining what you just said you have a situation where the fcc has spent like 90 percent of its time talking about the digital divide and 90 percent of its effort trying to figure out how to get more money to at&t and verizon so they can do fictional 5g stuff um and and i guess you know have you thought about that in terms of just i'm sure that that your head is a little bit flatter from banging into the wall of of how often <laughs> the, the chairman has said the digital divide is his biggest priority but but i don't know how do you react to that combination yeah, I mean, it's disturbing. And we're talking about an agency that has abdicated its authority over the internet. It has essentially said that regulating the the internet, um, the provision of internet access is outside the commission's purview. And so we, we have a commission that really isn't well situated to do anything other than ask nicely to industry to get them to comply with no shutoffs of internet during the pandemic um, to not impose uh, ridiculous data caps on their customers as they're spending days and days at home, um, and and so you know I I will Michael Calabrese, my colleague who works on spectrum issues, would probably want me to acknowledge that the the current FCC and the the chairman has done good work on some unlicensed spectrum issues and flexible go use spectrum issues. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and Michael's the true expert there, but, you know, but at the same time, the, the, the bread and butter of what the, the commission should be focused on and prioritizing right now is getting people connected during the pandemic. And the lack of action there is just, it, it, it's unsurprising because it, it relates back to one of Chairman Pai's first priorities coming into his role, which was to dismantle the 2015 Open Internet Order and undo the source of authority that the FCC had ultimately relied on to, to implement that order, which also would have allowed them to be a more hands-on agency when it comes to getting um, getting people connected and ensuring that broadband is affordable. Um, and so it's an unsurprising outcome of that early decision, but it's nonetheless you know, extremely frustrating. 
Yeah. So I, whenever I start getting too critical of this administration, I feel like Travis looks for ways to rein me back in. So Travis, give me a sense right now. I mean, you've, you and I have talked privately, and I don't remember if we talked about it on the show or not. Wi-Fi 6, amazing. The the new spectrum that's been unleashed, and now the high 5.9 stuff that the that uh, commission, the <laughs> Chairman Pai made happen. This to me seems like it is going to do far more to connect Americans and provide high quality services than, than possibly all of the future of of uh of 5g now here i am being hyperbolic again but but what do you think of that well i mean i think if you are a functioning wisp who is currently operating in rural america and you're fighting to try not to stomp on top of each other with the limited amount of spectrum that's available in the uni 1 uni 2 and uni 3 bands by opening up uni 4 and all of the six gigahertz band effectively the fcc has actually done something that can help the, the average operator that's out there. And I think what you'll start seeing here in the next year when the new chipsets are released, you're gonna start seeing high-speed wireless out in rural areas with relatively low costs that WISPs can upgrade to. Um, as far as in-home, it, it just re-solidifies the, the, my thought for fiber. I mean, every the thing people always forget on any of these wireless platforms is it's, it's the shortest distance back to a fiber. <laughs> So if you can get from your little wireless device fast back to a wireless tower, which is connected to fiber, it's perfect. And so by opening up the six, six gigahertz band, it's gonna get rid of the number one issue that, that faces consumers and that's in-home Wi-Fi. And the number one issue that is facing WISPs is the lack of spectrum. Oh, and here's, well, an, interest, here's an interesting take on it because Wi-Fi 6, does everything that 5G is supposed to do <laughs> in the house. I mean, yeah. Verizon's yeah. number one business plan three years ago for, 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 uh, for, for 5G was to take over the internet of things. Why would you pay a monthly subscription to look right. at your watching machine yeah. when Wi-Fi 6 is gonna handle every device you could ever bring into your home for free? The FCC actually sabotaged their own 5G initiative. <laughs> Sarah, let's give Michael some more well, the, credit. The, the fiber point is so important too in that specific context, Travis. I mean, obviously, if we could figure out a way to get folks at home affordable fiber-based to the to the premise connectivity, like we should, that that's that's a great priority and mm -hmm. one that we're totally on board with. Um, but I think what people forget is that we need fiber for lots of things too. We need fiber for a successful 5G network because, you know, we ha we're dealing with licensed spectrum and most of that, that connectivity is offloaded anyways onto Wi-Fi devices as, as you cycle in and out of different locations. And so uh, my, my colleague, Michael Calabrese calls this uh, wireless on a high fiber diet. <laughs> like you need to get fiber as close to the premises as you can, even if that means getting it to, a point to multi-point uh, wireless connection, um, but but you still need the fiber to get there. No, oh, I, I think that opening up the entire six gigahertz spectrum is going to be revolutionary. So Chris will always ramble on. He'll be like, "Oh, the Trump FCC, the Trump FCC." And then I always remind him, "I don't know. We got all six gigahertz." So I'm not political by any stretch, but that was a hell of a heck of a good move by them. And I'm actually really impressed and surprised they pulled it off. Something I recently saw that I just love, and, I'm, and I'll, I'll just throw it out here and say that this is something we should refine, including with experts like Michael Calabrese, but with the success of CBRS, 
And and now it's clear the FCC appreciates the value of unlicensed spectrum with putting so with putting that six band and in, in the high five nine band um, into it. Um, it seems to me that there's a really strong argument then for taking most bands of the spectrum and when they're not being used, having others being able to use them on a non-prioritized basis. Um, Sarah, are you guys working on that at all or have you thought about it at all? Yeah, Michael has done lots of work and has testified. I testified last November, gosh, over a year ago now um, uh, before Senate Commerce. And I believe Michael testified this July um, on exactly on this topic. Um, and uh, yeah, we need unlicensed spectrum. We need flexible shared use spectrum. We, we need to come. There is a the, the idea that there is a spectrum crunch is not like totally outside reality. But we have lots of we have many more tools at our disposal to deal with that the, the spectrum crunch than we did ten years ago, and um, and and so you know we need to think uh, light fully licensed spectrum should be something that we think about as like a last resort rather than like the go to for how we allocate spectrum. Doug or Travis, any comments on it? Well, my only comment on her last comment was if you make everything shared use the cellular carriers will use all of it so we have to have some limitations they are they are as greedy as greedy can be so so there has there has sure. to be limitations on them and open to everybody else so but yes i sure and that agree. wasn't to suggest right. that there should be no, no license spectrum in Correct. fact it has its purpose right. but we we need to cabin where there is like where there is yes. um, single purpose license use and, and think creatively about how we open up other brands yeah, we should we should be using it all i so 100 agree with that well it's, yep. it's an interesting question because it kind of is reverse issue of um it, it's an interesting matter of the commons in some ways in that unlicensed use typically you cannot stop anyone from using it but arguably if the if you have entities that are prone to abuse that open spectrum the the unlicensed um because they're just trying to prevent any competition to business models in which they have lots of exclusive then there would be good reasons to prevent certain parties from using spectrum that is otherwise open to all um it just I mean, I, I definitely worry about this. I feel like a lot of people do not appreciate how devious these companies are. And one of right. the reasons they are is because we're not talking about billions of dollars. We're talking about tens and hundreds of billions of dollars or more. Right. Well, yeah, but also remember, like, even in the CBR span, they can't eat it all up. Problem with the CBR span is they're, issue, they're divvying out 10 megahertz channels. So, yes, if you want to be the 25 megabit internet provider hop onto that but how are you going to compete in a market where there's gigabit or even cable plants you're not going to be able to so it's not just having access to spectrum it's having enough spectrum to be useful all right let's move on to the future of the fcc and that's uh, what we're going to spend most of our time talking about today, what kind of things we want to see. But first, I want to ask about what we're likely to see. And I think this is more a question for Sarah and Doug, because you follow it more closely than others. But um, a, a quick background is that the FCC may not be controlled by the president <laughs> this, this coming presidency. We, we now have a 2-2 FCC after a swearing in today of the latest commissioner, Symington. And um, and it's possible that the Senate will decide that they don't want to put in another commissioner. They want to leave it deadlocked to two, which uh, 
would make part of perhaps all of what we're about to talk about a little bit moot. So, so let's start there. And, and Sarah, do you have any predictions or thoughts on, on whether the FCC is just going to be kind of relegated off to the side, unable to do anything? So, you know, I think that people should be concerned uh, if, if the, you know, the, the wall street journal, who I think had an, which I think had an op-ed on this topic, basically encouraging McConnell to deadlock the FCC uh, and, you know, uh, Commissioner Carr, I think, has has made remarks in different contexts suggesting that this is a deliberate move to to deadlock the commission. Um, that's a real problem. The way this usually works, right, is that um, the party in, in power in the administration comes in and um, a, a fair amount of deference is given to the to leadership in Congress to nominate um the nominate folks to fill the vacant seats. So you'd get the, the you would essentially pair, um, depending on, on the sequencing of things and who, which commissioners are leaving when a, a one tactic is often to pair commissioner nominations and um, Senate confirmations so that you get one from the, the minority party and one from the majority party confirmed at the same time, which encourages folks to put their best best people forward and to avoid the really like partisan infighting, um, you know, it doesn't mean you that everyone always gets exactly the, you know, the 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 person they want, but it it, it tends to create guardrails that encourage everyone to be constructive and to move for towards a fully staffed agency. And this is true with the FCC. It's true with the FTC. Um, any agency that requires. Um, nominations and confirmations. Right. If so, I could just jump in for a second. Know, I mean, uh, first of all, Harold Feld does a lot of really good public writing on this for people that yeah. want to dig into it a little bit more. But you know, I've run into this also. People don't have a sense. They're like, well, why did why did President Obama put um, Commissioner Pai, then Commissioner Pai, on there anyway? You know, um, and and the answer is is because usually in D.C. they would work out compromises for people that weren't uh, someone that was a, a bomb thrower. They would bring on people that were kind of agreeable to all parties, and in effect, the Republican would kind of choose a person that was acceptable to or Democratic president to put on there. And this is all at risk of being blown up now for some unknown balance in the future. Yeah, and we don't... Go go ahead, Doug. There is an interesting... I heard today the idea that uh, because this is something Trump has done with other agencies, that that Biden may be able to do a string of 210-day temporary fifth-person assignments um, he's done that. Trump did that with a number of agencies that where he wasn't able to put somebody in. That would be for a very interesting FCC that in the next four years, we would have six different people sitting on the FCC. But there there are ways around it that are it's going to get very ugly and partisan. And and uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to stay a tie. The tie is even worse because there's retirements coming up. It's just going to get very ugly. You could have the second year of the Biden administration have a two, one Republican. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's getting very weird. So let's just, yeah. yeah. Having having a fully functioning agency is important. It's not just important to getting like the, the priority priorities that, well, the FCC is an independent agency. The, the, whoever is the chair sets the priorities, not the administration, but obviously there is, there is usually some synergy across uh, those, those priorities. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so we're, we're going into 2021 with a lot of uncertainty around what Symington's confirmation, um, and swearing in means for the agency longer term. And it, I, I, you know, I think you, 
be in La La Land if you didn't acknowledge that there that does impact the sort of policy agenda that you would want that, that groups like the Open Technology Institute have been pushing for um, publicly in our in our platform recommendations that we put out this summer. Um, that said, I think <coughs> excuse me, I just got like a tickle in my throat today. Um, and uh, I think there's going to, to Doug's point, this is going to be a lightning rod, I think, um, not just at the FCC, but across agencies, if this is part of a broader strategy. And I think there's a lot of people who um, are really good at changing the political dynamics of a given situation, either from, you know, inside the room or from like through community driven mobilization throughout the country, that there will be pressure to bear um, to to move us to a more constructive and not deadlocked um, FCC. But yeah, it certainly changes the initial um, feasibility for, for some of the biggest priorities that a lot of groups have been holding. So let's assume we have a, a functional FCC and um, we're gonna be making our case to it. Uh, Travis, I never start things with you. So um, what would you like to see the FCC do? You already named um, the uh, uh, a better definition of broadband and perhaps only funding technology that can deliver a gigabit, which now, thanks to Ardoff, apparently includes wireless um, <laughs> magically. Um, so, so what else, is there anything else from the FCC that that um, you would ask them to do? You know, uh, Commissioner Pai came to visit me and asked me the same question. He said, "What can we do to help?" And my answer was, "I don't." I didn't really know what he had available to help, but I told him that this would probably be all done and over with by the time they got around to being able to help. And so I really don't know what to ask. You know, we don't qualify for, because we're in a major metropolitan market, we don't qualify for any of the funds, programs, any, anything. Well, not today, uh, but if Sarah has, sorry, we, Travis, but not today, but if Sarah has her way, yeah. and if I have my way, like there will be money available to help connect neighborhoods of Minneapolis in which you have a very difficult business case. That would be wonderful, you know, but the problem is, can I, can I set my business model on, on that? Like not today, if, I mean, hope, hope to God Sarah is successful and is able to get that approved. And then we can There's actually, no faith in me. to be frank, there are, there, <laughs> there are some areas that are very challenging to service in a major metropolitan area, and it may actually instill more competition in other cities. So I guess I don't really know the question to ask, and I commend all of you that have patience in dealing with this, but um, I'm just, you know, we're just going to keep our nose to the grindstone and keep, because yours will click by, and we'll just have to deal with the outcome of what they pass or they legislate. So, Sarah, can you make the case for the um, the, um, the the nutrition labels, um, which your organization yeah. has been at the forefront of, I think, and then uh, I'm curious if, what Doug's thoughts are, and I really want to get Travis's reaction to this um, as an idea. Yeah, so the, the broadband nutrition label was something that OTI, uh, the Open Technology Institute, um, originally proposed, I think, before I was even there. So back in 20, 2009, um, we, we looked at the success of the FDA's nutrition label that you see on every prepackaged food item and thought, look, you know, we need... Um, we need people to have a better understanding. We need the FCC and we need um, would-be uh, subscribers to have a better understanding of the service to which they are subscribing, um, both in terms of cost, um, but also in, in terms of service characteristics, uh, potentially even up to and including latency, 
um, and other more specific technical characteristics. And what we have right now is a completely ineffective way of thinking about and understanding the service that people purchase. I had, I just negotiated a renegotiated my home internet connection and essentially got the company that I, to which I subscribe, they're essentially giving me a, like a 340 meg down um, internet package in order to satisfy the my the 150 meg um, package that I currently pay for. Um, so they they basically bumped me up from a technical standpoint into that like higher speed tier um, so that I could get something approximating. I think it gets me up to like 110 down or something um, off uh, off router. And so we need a better system, right? We need we need people to be able to um, understand the service that they're to which they're subscribing. We certainly need people to understand the cost of the service to which they're subscribing. And uh, we had looked at the success of the nutrition label in other contexts and thought that that was a, a good place to start the conversation. Interestingly, the commission did adopt a version of um, the nutrition well. It directed the Consumer Advisory Committee at the FCC, which is made up of both um, public interest and industry and other um, uh, advocates to come up with a safe harbor for compliance with the 2015 net neutrality rules, the transparency portion of those rules. And so essentially they directed the CAC to put together uh, something that um, companies could comply with. And if they if they included this thing that they would be presumed to be in compliance with the transparency rules. And so the, the Consumer Advisory Committee actually did put together a modified, a, a, um, improved version, I guess, or a, a modified version of the nutrition label that we had originally proposed um, and, and adopted it with, with support in that context at the moment from a wide range of stakeholders. And so there's, um, we don't see this as particularly controversial but there is a lot of inertia to actually getting to a point where it is adopted and used in a widespread way. Now, this is something that I think is sorely needed. Um, but I imagine that one of the things that will happen is, and I'm going to direct this to Doug, is that the industry will ultimately say, wow, how are we going to simplify our dynamic and really efficient, super interesting approach to challenge to, to making sure everyone gets just the right deal? Um, you know, how are we going to get that on a label? And it's just too hard. This is what they always say about the FCC collecting pricing data. It's just, it's too dynamic of a market. You can't possibly capture it. So, Doug, you've studied the pricing of tons of folks around the country. What do you think about it? Well, first off, the biggest problem I have with it, because I love it, but the problem I have it in real life is it's asking ISPs to tell the truth. And there's not a chance in the world they're ever going to do that. So, so you said so, ISPs, so, but you meant the big monopoly ones, right? I, I mean, mean Travis big, is honest, mostly. Travis, are you going to fill this? He's going to go gigabit, gigabit. This is easy. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 ju I'll jump in after because we actually did one. Yeah. It's little nutritionally yeah, I think yeah. right? but the, we but, have one on our website but the, but, but, but the big ISPs are simply yeah. they're not going to tell the truth and if they don't tell the truth then the label loses its entire purpose and, and again you said this earlier what's the penalty for lying and so unless there's some sort of penalty for, for not being truthful you know we already have transparency rules you know in, in the earlier FCC order that, that everything you know that trial got killed but you know that that order could be interpreted to do these that fits right inside that order and yet i've yet to see any is big isp actually fulfill that 
transparency rule. Go try to find out what speed you have. Our firm does surveys, a lot of surveys, and the public is so confused about broadband. It's unbelievable. People have no idea what they have. They don't understand almost any of the key basic vanilla stuff about broadband. And, and so that, you know, an honest nutrition label would be a, a really awesome thing. But that also would, would mean if they can do an honest nutrition label, they can also do honest reporting. <laughs> All you have to do is add them up, right? So, so yeah. Travis, you did one? <clears throat> yeah, so, so, we, so we took that idea, and I, I liked it. It was cool. It actually looks like something you'd see on a pack of food. And uh, we, we, I think we, I was trying to find it on our website. We have it. The, the challenge with it is, is the, the thing you got to understand is we're not really in the internet business. We're in the speed test.net right. business. <laughs> That's all the business that we're in. And if people see the little meter go into the 900s, they feel like they're getting what they paid for. So, so the common question I get back from former um, CenturyLink fiber users is, is, well, why is my YouTube buffering? Why do I have latency and jitter when I'm playing my game? And then trying to explain them that to them is 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 like explaining you know Mandarin to me. You know, it's just it doesn't it doesn't compute. It, so the, Travis, the issue sorry, is a lot. Let me just clarify. So you, what you're saying is is that there's a home gamer who's who's not getting that perform. They're they're wondering why they're buffering. Um, this is well, on your well, service exactly. or on? No, no. This when they move from. So we get a lot of CenturyLink customers that move over, and they're mm -hmm. like, "Geez, it works so much better." But because you got to, you know, yes, you need to have proper peering and all these other technical things that need to happen. But your average home user, all they do is have a little app on their phone. They hit test. And if they get to 300, they just assume they're getting the, what they're paid for. This, this they gets, may not. Yeah, this gets to, I think, this transparency issue, which I don't want to solve everything with technology. I want to solve very few things with technology. But frankly, Modern networks, I think, have the ability to do speed tests to the endpoints and, and report it in ways. And so, yeah, home users may have to be educated. But one of the things I find frustrated with, I mean, I'm a huge fan of MLab, the data that, that Sarah's organization spearheaded. I was just going to plug MLab. <laughs> Matt, it's, it's an open database, right? And this is so so important. Sam knows is a is official U.S. government approach to collecting information. But it's all secret and like you can't get to it. And like M Labs has this massive data set that allows you to play with it. And the challenge is that um, it's it's user tests in which they may have done it over Wi-Fi. They might have done it while the pipe was already super clogged. Um, and so even though it's a, it's probably the best picture that we have from an open basis, particularly for that number of tests, um, we can do better. And, and and I would like to see devices that are reporting this on their own. But to where though? Yeah, That's so one one thing I would add is I think this is this is the reason that we need different types of um, network performance testing um, because MLab differs from Ookla in that it runs it, it pings off network and so MLab was the reason that the Open Technology Institute was able to uncover and and uh, prove is maybe too strong of word but demonstrate the technical basis for the interconnection disputes that were alleged to have been happening in, tw in through 2014 between the largest ISPs and transit providers, which were carrying the traffic of major um, internet content companies to the end users. Um, and in that last handoff site over uh, between the, you know, the backhaul of the internet to the last mile, um, the ISPs were, we believe, allowing their side of the interconnection port to, con to artificially congest. Basically, the, you, these the handoffs need constant augmentations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the big ISPs, they, 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 they need to be upgraded in order to meet the capacity of, I, I describe it to my telecom law students as you have sufficiently large pipes in most instances, but the, the valve fitting between them needs to be constantly like readjusted so that the, there's a smooth handoff. And if you do nothing, then over time, as, as network demands increase, that port becomes congested. And so the, the uh, internet service, the last mile internet service providers, the big ones, were using that as leverage to try to charge the transit providers uh, more, um, in, in some cases, exorbitant amounts of money to hand off that traffic. All of this to say is that um, speedtest.net, which is the UCLA product that most of the ISPs like build their platforms on, their consumer facing platforms on for when they tell you to test your speeds at home, doesn't generally test off, off, um, off network. And so having having being able to measure to, to test both on both platforms provides valuable information if you're getting dramatically different results mm -hmm. then you can start to, and if you're getting that at scale that's the other thing mlab has its tetrabytes of data available um for public and public use and research use um, if you can actually like look at data trends then that allows you to do the type of research we were able to do with the interconnection report um, and the fcc could certainly do more of if there were more supported testing platforms and more, much more transparency for platforms other than MLAB with the methodology that goes into how those, um, those testing sites operate. And so, you know, it is true that network performance isn't a black and white, isn't easy to measure in a black and white way. Like there are, there's a lot of nuance and gray area and lots of factors that can affect, um, why your internet may be working at a slice in time, but more testing, more data, more transparency overall can really help us try to figure out where, where problems are happening and start to implement policy solutions to address them. That was very helpful. And, and I, think, I think people find that very interesting because we rarely get to that level. And I love that answer in part because I'm a huge overlapping networks guy. I think too many people think of good internet access as just finding one solution for the home. And I think we should all have multiple overlapping options that provide, provide resilience. So strongly support that approach to mapping. I do want to move the conversation along. I want to very quickly ask Doug to justify why he thinks we should kill the seventh year of the Connect America Fund. I think that's crazy. These carriers have worked hard, Doug. They've worked very hard to get all of that money and they need a seventh year. Tell us briefly what it is and why it should be killed. Oh. This is now I get an hour because I have to complain a lot. So, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, you know, the the big telcos got eleven billion dollars to increase rural DSL speeds up to ten one. For the most part, they didn't do it. They just didn't do it. We test and go all over the country, and we've been in entire counties where we couldn't find one customer getting ten one. So they for the most and and we've sent engineers out and we've looked at their DSL boxes like. Nah, these are 20 year old cards in the box, right? So we've, you know, they've not done the upgrades, they pocketed most of that money. And now they're getting rewarded with $2.4 billion next year for a seventh year. And they had, don't even have any upgrade responsibilities. It's just revenue to them. Yeah, uh, so that was a little give me that was in there from the last FCC. You know, we talk about FCC's administrations, but it was the last FCC that gave all this money away to the Delcos. Uh, I mean, it was just a flat out giveaway uh, and and Travis said it, and we're about ready to give them more RDOF money to do it again. So let's I just mean, be clear about this, right? Yeah. So through the years, they were supposed to be getting money to upgrade to 
In right. theory, they have hit 100%. And the FCC said, here's a bunch more money because we like you guys. Thank you for hitting 100%. Yes, I guess. I don't. <laughs> There's just no justification for it. $2.4 billion buys a lot of Sarah's programs. I mean, the fact is, that's a lot of money. Yeah. $2.4 billion next year goes to AT&T, you know, CenturyLink, Windstream, Frontier. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I must are, be doing something. You are. How do you're... I get? I mean, and, and no one goes to jail for not doing this all right. No, no, oh, no, no. They... man, no, no. Okay, I don't want to spend okay, too I'm, much time. I'm on doing that. it the hard. I want to. I want to. I want to watch Travis's head explode while Doug <laughs> very briefly tell us why you want the FCC to do more regulating of broadband because I, I thought this was interesting in particular, and I want to hear how Sarah reacts too. Usually, you don't hear people just saying, "Let's just do more regulating." Well, I like regulations in general because, again, you know, it, regulation is there to stop monopolies from abusing the average person on the street. That's what regulations are for, you know. And so we have regulations in moving companies and transportation and mines and telecom and electricity. And all of these regulatory agencies are there, quite honestly, to protect the small guy. And so we need more regulation because right now they've completely deregulated broadband for all practical purposes. And we're seeing just, we're about ready to see a complete explosion over the next three years of, of cable company monopoly abuses. Everything that they could possibly do wrong, they're gonna start doing wrong. They're gonna stop giving discounts. They're gonna stop come showing up to repair your stuff. You'll be out for a week. And, and this all happens at the local level. The big companies don't even have to make a decision. The local Comcast guy in some market's gonna go, you know, I can save all my overtime money and get a bigger bonus this year. I'm not sending guys out to do in evening repairs anymore. And all those little decisions, that means that broadband's going to go to hell for the, you know, for most people in the country. And it's because the FCC has no authority to say, hey, you can't do that. The FCC has given up their authority. Settle. We don't, they can't even take a complaint anymore. They just take the complaints and put them in an envelope and send them to the FTC. I mean, the, F, the, the, the FCC has no longer any jurisdiction over broadband, except for a few little weird things that they got handed to by other laws. But uh, we need that. We need all of these industries to be regulated. You know, I don't really like my cable company running over me with a steamroller. So, so um, I just wanted to, I wanted and, to face and, it I'm an that. ISP guy. ISPs don't really mind this. Little ISPs like Travis don't really mind if he's not allowed to double bill his customers. I don't think that would really bother him. So probably bother the customers, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm what I'm interested in is just just the word regulation tends to strike here a fear in it the does. heart of folks, and I think the FCC is is particularly vulnerable to being accused of when it does do regulations, doing it in ways that are amenable to larger corporations and smaller corporations have to figure out how to deal with it. Well, um, we have to admit the best phrase of all time is light touch regulation. I have to give them kudos for that because it means no regulation. Right. You so that's, a, that's an extremely light touch when it's no regulation at all. So. Utility style regulation <laughs> means when it's broken, they have to fix it quickly. It's, it's yeah. terrible. Which, Sorry, which is contrary to the way that the 96 Act was implemented. Right. It was designed to be a light touch regulatory approach that right. avoided the natural monopoly regulation of the Bell era. And so, sorry, this just really gets under my skin. Yeah. And Chris, I know you were going to go to Travis's reaction first, but can wait. you know, the, it was designed to facilitate competition, intermodal competition in the in communications in the communication space. And 
Um, so this, the notion of, of it being like super heavy handed is, uh, gets under my skin. Um, but also what, what I think is most important to remember is that is, is, is a point that Doug raised, which is, you know, putting aside like net neutrality for a second and just focusing on who is in charge of, as an agency of making sure that people are getting what they pay for and they're not getting the, the runaround or screwed over by their, their internet service provider, there currently is no agency uh, to do that. The FTC is there as like a, an agency that can hear complaints over a multi-year process and as a totally under-resourced agency right now. Um, but the, the FCC was designed to be the expert agency for communications technology and, and incumbent in that is the ability to sort of deal with problems as they come up. And right now they just don't have the framework to, to be that expert agency in the context of the internet. Yeah, I want to I wanna frame this just a little differently. I mean, one of the things I think about is when I go to the fuel pump, how do I know if I got 9.263 gallons going into my car? Right. I mean, it, it could have been seven gallons and they just charged me for that. Well, because the state has a system in which they test these things and they make sure that they're up to standards. And right now we have bandwidth caps that no one validates. It's just it's just Comcast's word against mine or someone else's word against mine. And and I guess I, I'm just curious if if. Um, you know, it, Travis, when you when you hear us talking about these things, um, are you thinking, yeah, we have to make sure that, that people are getting what they're paying for? Or are you thinking more like, man, I don't want to deal with more paperwork? I mean, I'm or having a third reaction, which is I really wish I was watching Netflix right now. <laughs> oh, no, I guess my reaction on a like a nationwide level is, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it would be helpful if, if people got what they paid for at a personal level, though. Don't make the competition too good is what I'm thinking, right? Because these are the, <laughs> the exact thing we market and sell against. And so if you, you know, you reinstate net neutrality, you get rid of bandwidth caps and you force them to provide high quality connectivity. Boy, you took three of my big, my big, my big, my big opportunities away. Now we're just. Unfortunately, Travis and 99 other markets, there's no Travis. So yeah, we're left with the monopoly. Yeah. But I heard Sarah was going to change uh, that. If we can get access to all these programs that they can in the farmland, I think you'll start seeing some competition in the cities. Good point. So as we have roughly five to 15 minutes left, depending on what we jointly agree to, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm curious about other things. Sarah, have we left anything out that's on your, your wish list that we want to make sure we cover? Well, I think, I mean, my wish list is, uh, I don't want to say long, but it, it covers both FCC priorities and congressional priorities. We've touched on we, on some the the emergency broadband benefit. Potentially, like thinking about that as a longer term um, affordability mechanism. Um, but I another thing that we I, we may have been referring to it obliquely, but I think actually could be a really productive thing to come out of Congress if Congress isn't deadlocked. Is something like what what was included in the um, 2008 stimulus package, which was direct support to communities um, and and internet projects um, through the BTOP program, the Broadband Technologies Opportunities Program. I think there were a lot of challenges and, and things that could be improved upon on that original BTOP uh, um, program. And, for, and to be full disclosure, OTI was a subgrantee on a couple of different projects in partnership with um, community-based organizations, but there's a lot, a lot can happen with 
true community-driven approaches to solving the problem of, of connecting local residents. And um, that requires resources and figuring out a way to get those resources into the hands of communities and giving them the agency to make decisions about how those projects are architected. So this is to say not just um, giving money to the incumbents to build out more and calling that good, but actually investing in community-driven solutions, I think is a really important, we're at, it's, it, there's a real moment for that. Um, and we're seeing communities deploying really in, incredible solutions. Um, we had an event this summer featuring um, folks from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Cedar other Falls. communities that were, what's that? Cedar Falls, common Cedar Falls. mistake. Yep. Cedar Falls. Yep. Um, uh, that Fastest were gaming. Networks. Sorry, sorry. Just briefly, I just want to get Travis. Uh, they beat you as being their PC mag. Just picked them the fastest gaming ISP in the nation. So you got some yeah, work to do. Buddy. We haven't figured out how they. So, so this one was actually <laughs> uh, Council Bluffs because I remember because I'm an Omaha native. But it, they're do there. It's a small scale network based on school connectivity that they would use their e they that they would like to have the flexibility to use their e rate funding for. But it's serving the entire community around the the local school district or throughout the local school district. And if we could just figure out ways to invest in some of these solutions in a way that allows them to build up some stability and, and capital, then um, I, I'm really optimistic that um, we can move to, and then, and then we have a way to evaluate and capture those solutions so that we can learn from them and, and build on them at scale. Um, that I'm really optimistic for, for solving this problem. I don't think we're gonna solve the problem of robust, affordable, and ubiquitous connectivity with a, with pulling one policy lever in Washington, D.C. It's going to need to be an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment. Yeah, well, and I would like to follow up on what she just said because no. we just learned I'm that reverse auctions don't work. We certainly don't want to give any more money to those. I would venture to say half that money was wasted. If that money had gone out instead to state block grants who could have then divvied them up among communities, we would have gotten wonderful solutions. Out yeah, of that I mean, I, I, I support that entirely. Yeah. I feel like um, the CAF2 auction went a lot better. I don't I don't know that I'm I, I feel like there's there's rules that can make reverse auctions work better. However, and I think John Chambers will be writing on this. He's one of my go to people on sort of this auction theory and stuff like that. Um, doing portable um, uh, vouchers and things like that may be the way to go from here. Um, and that really deals with this concern that perhaps Frontier and CenturyLink will just choose not to build a single bit of network with their winnings and just pay the fines at the end of that time as a cost of doing business to block competition. And these, right. those, that sort of gaming would not happen if the subsidies were basically a voucher style. Now, there's some problems with that, and I feel like it'd be an interesting future show. Um, but that's it's worth um, running down that, I think, um, in the future in terms of uh, the best way to get this money out there. One of the thing that I want to say to what Sarah was saying is, is just that this really ties into last week's show and that it would be amazing if the federal government said, you know what, we really need to like try these new models. We're going to build five Dane open access networks. We're going to build five Jeff open access networks. We're going to, you know, do that sort of an approach um, to see what can happen in these different things, get these test beds running back in the days where Congress had earmarks. We probably would have done it already. <laughs> we would have picked a few States based on needing some votes. We would have some interesting experiments, and uh, and I think we need more of that. So, um, I want to ask one specifically, which is um, um, Doug. You made a case for no new national broadband plan, and and I love you for it. So, so tell us why we shouldn't engage in a national broadband plan. Well, 
you know, you've got two policy people on the phone here, so I don't mind policy people, obviously, or I wouldn't have anything to do myself. But, but you know, what we don't need is for the FCC to go spend $100 million or $10 million or $50 million for a bunch of people to get in a room and come out and tell us everything we already know is broken. We already have a list of solutions. Her, her group has 40 solutions already to go, and so do other smart people. We don't need to spend a whole lot of money to make a list of those good solutions, especially once you do that, that's a compromised document and it ends up being a watered down version of the solutions. Um, you know, it was an interesting thing 10 years ago when they did it because no one had done it before. I think I went back and looked at, I don't think, I don't think even one of the original recommendations was ever implemented. So, you know, let's just, let's not waste time going there again. Again, I would rather see that $10 million go to a school net system somewhere than go to, yeah, or, policy yeah. folks even if i could be the one collecting it because i could probably wangle my way onto that kind of thing but that's just a waste of federal money so yeah too many talking heads <laughs> sarah do you have any do you have any thoughts on that um i definitely agree in, in that many of the old bullet points from the 2009 2010 plan are things you are trying to implement today <laughs> still right same list yeah the, the This notion of it being a compromised document from the onset is interesting. And I think it's, it's interesting to me to think about how advocacy itself um, and, po and political dynamics and po how influence um, has evolved over time. Um, like we saw with net neutrality, a completely, with the net neutrality fight leading up to 2015, a completely reimagined playbook for um, advocacy to make change. I mean, we, we had a, a an FCC chair that was that started out in one very specific place, uh, and over time, and with persistence, and with a wide-ranging um, coalition of advocates, um, community-based uh, groups, and grassroots organizations, um, grassroots mobilizing organizations, and uh, civil rights and racial justice organizations, we were able to really change um, change the political realities on that particular issue and on and i think really change we, we reset the the starting point for a lot of conversations in dc and beyond um and and I, some of that's not new like it's not like th this was this came out of of nowhere there were some well-tested and, and previously used mechanisms for for shifting the needle but so a lot of it was and i think you know, as we're thinking about connectivity, not just for connectivity's sake, but for mobile, the sake of mobilization and political engagement, and um, particularly when when entire agencies are going to start um, start off fully remote in twenty in, in the new um, the new administration, uh, I I just see I I maybe agree with Doug that the best use of resources isn't trying to like get everyone in a virtual room to fit to hammer out. Um, a, a group document, but rather to think about like, we, we know what the problems are and to start leveraging some of those, um, uh, the, these newer advocacy strategies to move the needle and, and make change. Now, I, I wanna end with the final question to Travis, which is, so we've talked about all of these things. Does anything about it make you think, yeah, I really wish they would get that done? Or is your sense just tomorrow, I'm going to keep acting as though there's really no federal government and I'm just going to do my thing? Well, I just, I don't know. The only thing that I, I always remember back on all these times is I remember Ajit 
Pi came out to visit us. We put him on a directional drill. He drilled a conduit up to a house. We pulled a fiber in and we lit up a customer. So I could say with all confidence that he improved the lives of one family. And <laughs> what else has happened? I don't know. Is anything going to change in the next four years? I, you know, what? let's record this one. I highly doubt it. But you know what we'll do? We'll continue every day trying to hook people up, trying to change lives, trying to give people connectivity and trying not to talk much about it and be more on the action side. Mm -hmm. so, that's a where we'll live. There is a question in the chat, which is whether the um, accessible, affordable internet for all act, uh, um, what kind of that's looking like. And I just wanted to not necessarily raise this, although Sarah, if you have a quick thought on it, I would take it. Um, we are in the middle of, this is the legislation that has been bounced around a couple of times in 2020, developed by the US House, uh, by, by I think um, Representative Clyburn, among others, Senator Klobuchar is a sponsor in the Senate. Um, it is terrific. It is the best legislation I think that we've seen come up. One of the reasons that we're actually detailing it on muninetworks.org and as well on broadbandbreakfast.com uh, in order to try to get out there so people have a sense of how good sort of the stake in the ground was from House Democrats and we'll see what we end up with in the next year, um, perhaps the next month or two. Um, but I think it's a great bill. It puts a lot of money into urban, into rural, into digital inclusion, into better mapping and pricing data collection and all kinds of things that, that I, I just think is a very good piece of legislation. And uh, depending on how hopeful I am, I, I think it could be passed or perhaps passed in some compromised fashion, which will still be pretty good. But Sarah, do you have any very quick comments on that since it was a question in the chat? Just that we've been very supportive um, of, of the legislation and, and agree. And it's, it's really got a lot in there um, in terms of it, that represents a lot of the priorities that, that organizations like ILSR and, and the Open Technology Institute have been working on. I have a little more cynical view of it. Not that I don't love the act. I think what's in there is great. But, you know, we've had periods now since the 96 Act when we've had a totally red uh, you know, House and, and, and administration and at a time when we had blue. And Congress is probably not able to ever pass a major telecom bill because it's one of those kind of things where there's so many moving pieces in the telecom bill that the people from both parties don't necessarily vote the party line. Unless we get a big majority of one of the parties, I don't think we're ever going to see it. It only takes, you know, if, if let's just say we end up with a 50-50 Senate, it only takes one senator to decide to vote against it and it's just really hard in this environment to get major telecom act. And, and so I'm, I'm somewhat in, in Travis's boat that, you know, the Senate is the, the, the Congress is not going to be the ones to bail us out. It's going to have to be the slow FCC path. I, I just don't think they're ever going to pull the trigger. I wish that was not the case because they're the ones who can fix it. They could fix it all tomorrow. So it's a wild card. I'll just it say it's a wild card. It is a wild because, card. Yeah. You know, SOPA um, broke, all kinds of things uh, for those who remember SOPA PIPA um, in terms of engagement. Um, net neutrality melted the phone lines um, a few years back. Um, you know, I, I feel like if people people care about this in ways that electeds don't appreciate and we could see people pushing for some of these. To be clear, the, um, what Doug said, it doesn't change. I'm not trying to dispute what he's saying, um, but um, this is not a, a bill that would change regulation so much. It's mostly a bill that would put money into digital inclusion and, and internet infrastructure. Um, oh, I hope you're right. I, you know, I'm, I'm more of a pessimist than you are. <laughs> today. 
Well, let me thank uh, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. It's been it's just been wonderful to see you again. I don't see you often enough since you got the big title. Um, and uh, thank you, Doug. Thank you, Travis, for coming on once again. Nice job, Chris. And I just want to tell the public, if anyone's seen me jerking around, I have a brand new kitten in my office. This has been an adventure that you all didn't get to see. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a cat that was crawling all over me, too. I don't know if she made uh, an actual cameo or not. Yeah. Um, nice. Did you see her dog or what? Or she? I don't know where. She, now he's somewhere. Who knows? My Beagles, my beagles <laughs> yeah. tried to get on the audio track there briefly while Sarah was talking at one point.